Second Bananas is recorded on unceded Indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that Indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. in an impossible riding uh, with a lot of social conservatives. And the only place where they could rent a campaign office was at Fantasy Gardens. So like, uh... we had our campaign office. We were in there like every day at this abandoned <laughs> Christian theme park, uh, campaign for a Muslim <laughs> socialist for office. Delightful. And out back, that I wish rules. I had like, it was pre so it was just before a social media era. So I don't, I can't even find any photos of it, but there was like a Jesus statue that was like, not toppled, but was just sort of in storage in the back courtyard. Courtyard, like so, we had piles of like NDP signs and then a big statue of Jesus out back of this <laughs> like some like some like crazy, a Yadarowski like... film or something. Just like definitely <laughs> like Children of Men. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I think the secret is Fantasy Gardens has like the best real estate rental prices yeah. in the province. <laughs> Everyone wants to live there, <laughs> or it's like the only place you can get cheap affordable real estate well you, you have For to pitch in on the gardening a little bit and yeah buddy gotta keep discount. up the property yeah. mm. that window that window closed because now <laughs> now it is a condo development and yeah it doesn't right. work the same there anymore high price <laughs> probably of course it has it's been a luxury condo i hope <laughs> yeah yeah if you yeah. pay enough you get the jesus statue 1.5 million starting at 1.5 mil per suite <laughs> it's like yeah um well welcome to the pod everybody thank you uh this You're is welcome. second banana <laughs> yes you are welcome cut that out he's okay. not gonna cut that out uh okay. he uh yeah welcome to second bananas the podcast about history's greatest garfunkels uh today i'm joe i'm i'm joe every day but i'm joe one of the hosts hi joe i'm wes another host and i'm craig yet another host and uh joining us today is uh Socialist dad, organizer, editor at Ricochet uh, Magazine, and former Vancouver City Council candidate, Derek O'Keefe. Welcome, Derek. Welcome, Derek. Hey, Derek. Thank you. And I, and I qualified for the podcast because I didn't win when I ran for city council. So. Oh, yeah. We were not. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, Otherwise. The prerequisite, I think, what? right, for this show. I, as I understand the concept. I think I have a I feeling. Think, yeah, I actually right. have a feeling that uh, Melissa DiGenova is very fun at parties. Just, you know, not not our parties, obviously, but I have a feeling she's fun at parties. Like, <laughs> that definitely doesn't need to get drunk to say the craziest. <laughs> uh, I just, invite you she, to test that theory, Joe. Because uh, yeah, yeah, invite I'll invite her to the to the pod. We'll have her on. Um, but yeah. Well, um, when you put it that way, I'm a pretty sad. Yeah, that's uh, Melissa DiGenova probably got 
I want to say like 20,000 more votes than me or something like that's pretty, that's pretty grim. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's gotta, that, yeah, that's gotta feel weird. But... Yeah. Yeah. But no, that yeah. I don't consider that a first run for office because they didn't even let me campaign. Like it was more important to go to the socialist branch meetings than to go knock on doors. So I, I didn't even get to oh, campaign wow. during that. Okay. Right. Yeah. It was just a, just a paper candidate. Right. Hey, sometimes the paper candidate, is the candidate you need. So yeah, I've twice uh, been second banana. So, you know, third time is, yes, is, luck, exactly. is lucky, but I'm not going to run again until probably until my kids are like at least uh, almost grown up. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you on that. Um, and there's more important political work to, to do, uh, of course. The, the candidate is just like one part of the whole thing, the least important yeah, part. Totally. Really. Yeah, it's a good um, observation. But yeah, I think speaking just cliche, of political... It's just a cliche that a losing candidate yeah. recycles to sound noble, right? No, it's also it's it's also, <laughs> it's also a cliche true. that socialist circles recycle as they excuse why not to vote in elections or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think uh, the, although I do want to get back to the 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 young the socialist cult, but um, Derek, uh, I think we were ta- you talked about this our our subject today. I think I can't remember whether it was you talking about it or bringing it up in like a. I think you brought it up twice, and I kind of clicked. Um, it was really cool because I, yeah, I, I, it just was, I had no idea this woman existed to be honest. And that's kind of part of what we're going to talk about today. But our, our, yeah. our subject is Rosemary Brown, who was, uh, the first black woman, uh, MLA in, I think in Canada, not just in BC, yeah. but also was the first black woman to run to lead a federal party, um, which she did in 1975 and came in second to Ed Broadbent. And that's just sort of the brief overview, but um, yeah, Rosemary Brown is her name again. And I, I just, I guess, Derek, I wondered, um, the three of us are not originally from BC, but um, you are. And I was just wondering, you were kind of like very young during this time period, or was this kind of before your time and you just heard stories about it? Rosemary Brown, that is? Yeah. Oh, this was definitely before my time. Yeah. Okay. I was not born when she ran for, for federal leader. And wow did i just did i just do an ageism i'm sorry i don't know how it just I disrespected a gen xer i think it was yeah, like i'm sorry <laughs> no i'm probably I'm the, maybe I'm five years i'm in the exennial yeah. oh yeah original star wars trilogy mini generation right. um so rose although rosemary brown's term in office did go until 1986 she was an mla Right. Um, but she was not, and I kind of did grow up in an NDP household, but I guess I was too young to have a consciousness of her until, until after she was retired. Um, and I certainly heard of her. Um, but despite her like very significant and historic role in Canadian history, even myself as, uh, as now a longtime socialist activist, I had, I would kind of forget about her from time to like, you know, you forget about her and then from, <laughs> are reminded, oh yeah, yeah. Rose, Rosemary Brown did this and you'd hear something else. Um, so yeah, I was just sort of in the last year or two, I was reminded of her again and sort of started reading more and, and looking more into her life and, and her politics, which were far more radical than I, than I would have guessed. Yeah, I was going to say, I watched her speech. CBC had an article about her that included her speech for the leadership at the convention. And, and to me, it started off and I was like, okay, well, you know cool like totally awesome this is probably the first and one of the few black women to even be on that stage so that's cool in itself but like 
like I've heard politician speeches before. And then it's like that Vince McMahon meme where he just gets more <laughs> excited with every, she starts with like oh. talking about public ownership and then you're like, okay, yeah, public ownership. That's good. But then she's like, and also there are these like, so quote unquote public ownerships that are really just a way to funnel like money to multinational corporations. And you're like, you get mm. more excited. And then she goes on and she's <laughs> like, and, and, and furthermore, we have to completely disavow imperialism. And I don't think she checked the Lima group by name. Which, but there was like a like it was just like that Vince McMahon meme of it until I'm just like oh like just totally screaming because I was like <laughs> this is so, this was so, a, a black woman saying this in 1975 and she came in second and it's mm-hmm. like ten maybe I don't know about ten years later but like to me the NDP all my life has never even been that radical you yeah. know and that's that was just fascinating for me to see that and be electrified in every moment by that speech. And it was, it's, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the thing I, I found. And I don't know if you found with Rosemary Brown is like just how radical she was um, compared to like a, any politician that would come in second in any leadership race now. Right. And, and how directly she spoke to that stuff. And, and I guess my question is, was that, was that a feature of the, the NDP at the time? Was that sort of like what most of the NDP was like at that point or was it like, was no. it still, had it already kind of become this sort of like further right sort of whatever? I don't, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, what's so interesting about that 1975 speech and that leadership <laughs> run that I guess even having, you know, been around socialist groups, you know, the cult was just two or three years as a young person, but <laughs> being around healthier socialists. Weaving it back in. We're weaving it back in. You'll being hear more around, about the cult. Being yeah. around inside or outside the left wing of the NDP for 20 years, I had never really heard the story of that 1975 leadership race. And I, I, I don't understand the Vince McMahon meme because, you know, Gen X, uh, <laughs> but I, but I, and also Vince McMahon, obviously. Like, it's just him getting more and more excited with each, like, further step. No, I understand your interpretation. I was just, <laughs> I was hooting and hollering you know by the, the end of it. You know? Feeling self-conscious that I didn't mm-hmm. quite get, know that meme. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was having the same reaction when I watched that speech, when I came across that article with the speech. Uh, it was like, holy, she's saying this in 1975 to the, and the audience are like... Yeah, they're, you know? they're at least like there's a ton of clapping. It's not, and there were signs for her yeah. and like for Ed, but yeah. it just, and her sign was better, by the way. But I did, there was one point where it cut away from her and it's like they did a lot of shots of the crowd in this speech, which is really great. So you sort of see different reactions and yeah. there's just... She says, I can't remember what she was saying. It was definitely something about like imperialism or or something like that. It was just in the middle of that really radical part of the speech. Yeah. And it just cuts to this like guy clearly in his 60s, smoking a pipe. Smoking, yeah, exactly. Not, not clapping, not doing anything. He's holding an Ed Broadbent sign with UAW written across it. And I was just like, ah, yeah, okay, that's the NDP I recognize. All right. And I don't, yeah, yeah I don't mean that to like diss everyone who's in the NDP or say all NDP, but that's like, to me, that's the guy the NDP caters to now, in my opinion. And I'm, a 1975 I'm, auto worker. The ghosts of a 1970, which is, it's not just them. It's like, it's like a thing that won't, it's like, it is a specter that won't go away. And it's, I mean, yeah, whatever. So yeah, when I saw this video, I was thinking, so on the one hand, I was shocked that she got 40% of the vote and had mounted this serious challenge um, against which like the whole party establishment had to unite behind Ed Broadbent. In fact, right. Ed Broadbent had vowed not to run for leader that time. He was going to sit it out 
once Rosemary Brown declared and was gaining some momentum, the old guard, like David Lewis and the, the Lewis family and, and our hero, Tommy Douglas, they kind of encouraged Ed Broadbent as the young up and comer to run. Wow. At time to like, so they all united behind Broadbent to stop Rosemary Brown. Um, I don't, does this, does this sound familiar to you guys? Never happens. I've never no. heard of it happening in other uh, uh, venues. <laughs> But the other thing is that this is only a couple of years after the waffle had been essentially kicked out of the NDP. They were right, actually right. expelled you, from the Ontario NDP in the early 70s. Can you explain about the waffle a little? Yes. Sorry. So uh, yeah. the waffle um, is a deliciously named <laughs> socialist and uh, socialist and sort of weirdly Canadian nationalist, like anti-US in a weirdly, what would now seem weirdly and... Uh, heavy-handedly Canadian nationalist, at least economically, um, uh, faction that uh, tried to essentially re uh, take over and recreate the NDP as a socialist um, party in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And I think it was 1972, at the previous federal convention, when David Lewis was elected leader, um, they had run James Laxer as like the waffle candidate for leader of the NDP. So it was sort of a left insurgency within the NDP that was defeated at the leadership convention in the early 70s, and then within a year or two was kicked out of the party. Stephen Lewis, uh, famously as the leader of the Ontario NDP, um, called for their expulsion and sort of organized kicking them out of the Ontario NDP. Um, and, and then what was left of the waffle kind of faded. Um, so like the, the, the sort of left had just been dealt this real blow, and, and essentially many of them kicked out of the party. And then to have just a couple of years later, what I would say is an even more left-wing and more radical and clearly anti-imperialist. There was no, nothing, um, none of that sort of tacky Canadian nationalism in Rosemary Brown's speech in 1975. Yeah, like yeah. to me, and a more internationalist um, perspective. Of course, we can get into that, her roots in Jamaica and the politics yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, to me, it's like, wow, something even more inspiring than the waffle came along a couple years later and still, despite the left having been purged somewhat, still was able to mount a serious challenge and obviously galvanized a big section uh, of like the feminist movement, the anti-war movement, um, and just the, the social movements of the era. I mean, 1975 is still sort of the late 60s in terms of those social movements. Um, mm. So it's just a reminder that like, the NDP that we had today, um, and even like the institutions of the party today are tied to Ed Broadbent's legacy, right? There's the Broadbent Institute, which is often yeah. frustratingly centrist um, in its approach and the politicians. Can you say that again? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, often. I mean, uh, you know, you always want to hope even an institution like that would, would shift back to the left. But um, yeah, and Ed himself waffled throughout his career. I mean, he wasn't always the defender of the center of the party, but obviously he became part of that establishment. But I'm just like, when I saw that 1975 speech, my brain was just firing with like counterfactuals. Like this country that we live in would suck so much less, less if Rosemary right, Brown had won. Totally. Somehow she had won in 1975. Mm -hmm. Had a, a black internationalist socialist right. leader. And who knows, like maybe prime minister. I mean, the world was a right, was a right. much can, different place. Things could have gone in, in totally different directions. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, so I was. It, it's a fun thing to imagine, uh, mm -hmm. but also just like frustrating. 
that we're here like almost 50 years later. You can hardly get any MPs to identify as socialist. Uh, nobody wants to talk about imperialism in the context of electoral politics. Um, yeah, I just, it, it's, so it's, so it's hopeful and inspiring, but also like depressing uh, when yeah. viewed against today's electoral realities on the left in Canada. Yeah, I think like it's very depressing in the sense of like also like we've in certain ways this that we've backslid so much. And that's like one of the things I think a lot of people don't don't necessarily recognize is like there's still sort of this underlying, you know, I don't think it's even conscious assumption that like like, you know, like the Martin Luther King, like the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And like, I don't want to, I think like there is some value in that as like a carry on kind of thing, but like, it becomes like this thing of like, well, we're always advancing. We're always advancing in, in like every way. Right. Like, and it's like, no, we've backslid in certain ways. And I don't mean like overall and everything and we're backsliding all the time, but like things come, things don't just, just balance out. There's not like an arc. There's sort of like a lot of it's like a bunch of peaks and valleys. And even then it's like, yeah, that's not even the right metaphor, but just that, that we wouldn't, we would never get a, even a candidate like on, on the left, like that's an, a young, even the young NDP people who I think are like these new, these new MPs that are different. Like it still feels like they won't touch a lot of that stuff. A lot of that stuff is a third rail still. Right. Whereas like, and maybe it was in the time. That's what I'm interested in is like, was that a third rail at the time? Was it like as shocking as maybe Bernie was in 2016 or something like that? I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I think, I think it must've been to a certain extent because there was definitely like the depths of cold wariness and all this stuff mm. geopolitically that was going on for sure um, that, that, you know, she would not have, and the like movements would not have been immune to at all. Um, yeah. but still, I think it just signifies how much of a heavy hitter she was in reality. Like yeah. that is like a global, yeah and like top tier kind of politician that had a chance and had some traction but didn't have enough and again like the internal apparatus kind of being turned against her in her own party kind of thing these these things these are like the historical yeah. pivotal, pivotal moments right where the, the front person of a movement of a party of a whatever um get swapped out <laughs> for somebody who's going to bring it back to the center gradually or, or whatever. Right. It's, it's kind of a template that gets applied in a lot of different situations throughout history, right? 2016 being an example for sure. Um, for Rosemary Brown in particular, I don't know, different, different moments when, and you know, maybe it's because it's easier to, if you're going to try and play electoral politics at a certain level, it's easier to, kind of tack to where there's more ready support you know there's less i don't know i think i feel like you have to have a certain level of introspection and um reflection on Wait. things to be left oriented politically to begin with and the reality is in a busy world like this is getting pretty high level on the whole thing but in a busy world a lot of people don't even have time to pay attention to politics yeah. Or like whether oh, yeah. they're whether sure. they're on the left or not, for example, and, and that's why I think you're, you you typically struggle to see high numbers of like you know voter turnout and lower demographics. I mean, it's getting better, but uh, it's it's like in Canada and the U.S. it's like nowhere near like hundred percent. Like, uh, no, it's true. It's pathetic, actually. And Joe, I think you touched on some of it too with 
you know, people who identify as socialist or leftist generally not necessarily being motivated to the polls. And, right. yeah. and even, you know, the, the left candidates that do exist suffer for that greatly, I think. Right. I think we're going to start to see a change in that now that, now that like people see it's like, oh, our lives are on the line, like with issues like climate change and like medical policies and things like that. It's like, well, we could yeah. die if we don't like choose the right candidate in some cases. Um, but even like speaking to the times, like I wonder if Rosemary Brown climbed as high as she did because, well, because it at that time, you know, there was a lot of challenge to like the social norms of like women, elderly, like, like who are these people? What are their place in society? And what do we like owe to them to like, you know, give back to them in our country or in our, in our community. And she, as a, you know, a black woman, like could speak to both of those groups of, of, you know, minorities and, and women who are like looking to, you know, maybe have something better for themselves than, you know, find a husband and, and, you know, yeah. raise a bunch of kids. Yeah. Looking that's to subvert pa the patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the, those intersections are what make her such a potent for the heavy hitter that she was such a potent force or, yeah. or that, that had such potent potential beyond what she achieved, which I think was also, you know, pretty significant in any case. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's. I, I also really think it's interesting that you brought up like that she's like the, like bringing these elements up, but also like her. You notice like she starts off. Um, she all the whole time like definitely like from the start of her career like she was a social worker before this, and her 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 like sort of the thing that she kept coming back to is is women, and not just in a way of like like it's 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 not only is she like the first black woman in to do any of these things in Canada, but also she was still advocating for specifically like poor and underprivileged women, like women. Mm -hmm. and, and that was her big thing was like women yeah. in poverty. And she, yeah. even in those things, like some of those talking points, I had never, I had never heard on TV before. I had definitely seen them in, you know, small publications and like, you know, like even just people's comments on social media, but it was like, it was stuff all I recognized, but it wasn't stuff that ever got on like, the TV, the, the CTV mm -hmm. or whatever, like CBC, right? That was a CTV mm -hmm. program that did that. That was what was fascinating was that she, she was in TV in the, in the sixties and seventies before she went into politics. And that's a whole, there's a whole show uh, called people in conflict that I, I couldn't find any clips of. I just, I looked and I couldn't find any clips of it. And I think that that speaks to another thing about like how, um, how we miss this. And it's like, and it, I don't even think it was on purpose. I just think like a bunch of stuff about her just got lost to time or was it was deliberately not kind of kept around or whatever. And then, it, or eventually it just like money went out, right? Like they had to retape over those tapes in the studio because CTV was probably running on a really small budget or whatever. Right. Like, if, mm -hmm. you know, you hear about the BBC doing <laughs> yeah. that even. So <laughs> yeah. I just think like it, to me, it was like the stuff she was saying was like stuff that I hear now but I never heard on TV or anything in that time, especially at like all, all my life. And I'd never seen clips like that. Right. Um, well, that, that show is like an early sort of a reality TV format, but with people are being asked to really bear themselves and their problems right. uh, to this group of panelists, but it's not, they're not being uh, paraded just for the humiliation. Like it's actually the panel from what it sounds like that the panel is actually there to sort of unpack the social roots of their personal problems. Yeah. 
and to like actually offer advice, not like Dr. Oz advice or Dr. Phil advice, but like real, um, like real talk and, and linked to the social conditions, creating poverty and marital dysfunction and, and all these other issues. And in her autobiography, she talks about how uh, kids would run home from school um, to watch that show because it was one show where um, people were talking about sexual issues and gender issues right. and the producers would make them uh, they would front load all the talk related to sex and adult stuff quote unquote um, mm. because the kids would be coming home from school just to see that uh, what passed for explicit talk in the 70s but yeah it just sounds like a fascinating show and it's really sad that um, hopefully there are some archives somewhere i i think um, where that could be dug up I hope they're, I think they are archived. I just don't think they're like mm -hmm. whatever the archive state is. I don't know if it's available to the public. If you have to go to like a library in Ottawa to see Not it, like digitized. under the, under the microfiche. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to, you have to go, go into the basement of, um, of the hill in Ottawa <laughs> and just like, like arrange a stone tablet into the right formation. So it opens to the great crystal that like beams them into your brain. Um, but yeah, I, um, no, I just, I, I, but then there is this stuff out there and I also just think it's fascinating that, you know, and even, I guess like the, a lot of the official histories, like I looked at her Wikipedia page first and it was kind of the same four or five like bits sort of like brought up of like, oh, here is, here's, this is Rosemary Brown. She was the first black MLA in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. Like, and, uh, oh yeah, she paved the way for representation. Like she talked about how she was a, like, like being a woman and a, a person of color, there was nowhere in society to go, but up, like there are all these sort of points that every, and then I look at Wikipedia and it's like, okay, so that's one. I'll check the next one. I checked like the Canadian encyclopedia and it had those kind of same five points basically recycled every time. And like, it would set one of them was always like, oh, you know, she like introduced, um, you know, like, uh, like, th like, uh, bills about like gender discrimination at work and age discrimination and written like that stuff. And like, even if that, like that stuff wasn't codified into law till she did it, that was really interesting to me. And again, like this is a woman mm. from the sixties and the seventies when obviously that stuff is happening in the USA as well, but it's, yeah, it's interesting to see the different ways it happens and how sort of it just becomes this point instead of like a real sort of like you, like you said, like the, the social conditions kind of had broken down to the point to allow figures like Rosemary to come through. And in a weird way, there's a, there's a, it's hard to, to picture that when you just see it as like a bullet point on a thing, but the more you dig into her, the more you're like, Holy fuck, this was like very cool and very radical. And there was a lot going on um, that I, I would never have seen just like not actually like digging deeper and finding all these little things like you said. Mm -hmm. For sure. I didn't want to go too far in, into the, the show here without mentioning how I really like it was partly that speech from 1975 coming up on CBC uh, and being shared around social media that brought her to my attention. But what really uh, brought her back to my attention was my partner who uh, works in a women's uh, shelter, uh, works with her granddaughter or worked with her uh, oh, Rosemary's no grand granddaughter. Oh, wow. And I think at some point there was talk about rosemary brown and her co-worker was kind of like oh yeah that's my grandma that was my grandma wow. and uh, <laughs> yeah so you know just from visiting with her and having her over this is pre pre-pandemic we'd have long talks about her memories and uh yeah i mean i obviously don't want to don't want to put any of her words uh poorly paraphrased out there but that definitely piqued my interest in, in researching and um 
you know, her grandfather as well, Rosemary's husband, was uh, was a doctor, a psychiatrist, um, who also wrote a lot of, uh, in terms of poverty and, uh, and medicine, was also very accomplished. He only died a few years ago. Um, so, you know, like um, our friend would bring over, like, here's a paper my grandfather wrote. Um, and it's just like brilliant stuff. And um, so she recommended um, the, the memoir that Rosemary Brown wrote, which is, as we're saying, things being lost to history. It's like, Completely it must be, print. it's obviously, it's out of print. There's like two copies in the whole Vancouver library system. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't get it on Google Books. There's no preview on Google Books. Um, so it's a fascinating read. Like, because you it's got written a copy, in 1980. Right? I, did, I did get a copy. Yeah. Show you guys. Oh, uh, yeah. I think you posted oh, that nice. to me. Awesome. Today, so, yeah. This <laughs> is pretty great. Yeah. Um, so I've been powering through that. And um, yeah, it really gives a vivid uh, picture of her life. And something that even um, her descendants carry is this. And our friend, again, not to talk about my, uh, my wife's coworker. Um, <laughs> But just like it's it's clear that throughout this whole family, even now, there's just an ex not an extreme, but to to general Canadian society, there's an extreme importance on education, awareness of history, and on women's leadership. Um, and so reading Rosemary's um, memoir, you get a sense because she was essentially raised by her grandmother. Her father died when she was a very young child. Yeah, in, uh, and so she in Jamaica. Up in, um, in Jamaica. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, she was born Rosemary Wedderburn on June 17th, 1930 in Jamaica. And yeah, the big quote I kept coming to on this was raised in a household of strong, educated women uh, or women who valued education was like the quotes that kept coming up over and over again. So, yeah. So reading, reading this memoir, I like finally understood that sense of like, oh, she's not just a Canadian heritage moment with those five points. Like, as Craig said, she was this like real, like international heavy hitter. And what made her a heavy hitter was she was she was part of a real tradition, a political tradition um, in Jamaica. And she gets it in the memoir, you get more of a sense of it. Like she had an uncle who, an aunt who sort of helped create the social work profession in Jamaica. Mm. Um, her grandmother and many of her family members were involved in the National People's Party, which became the main party of socialism and independence from Britain. Um, but so it, it was fascinating reading that memoir. Yeah. She's born in 1930. I think you said, right, Joe? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think it's around 1940 or, you know, sometime when she's around 10 or 11 years old, um, school has been the main thing. It's always about going to school, uh, doing well in school. But one day when she's 10 or 11, all the kids get sent home from school in a panic because riots had broken out across the country and they were anti-British riots. So there were riots in response to some, some egregious thing that the colonial power had done. So essentially pro-independence yeah. uprising has started and she gets home and she didn't have any sense of politics, but immediately like her grandmother and the other sort of strong women in her home and extended family were like, well, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily agree with the violence, but we are part of the struggle for independence from Britain and for democracy in Jamaica. And that's so from like a, the time that she's 10 or 11, she's acutely aware of this like, family uh, family involvement and just like a really strong political tradition as she describes it like in her experience growing up in jamaica everybody talked politics it was totally bizarre to meet someone who didn't talk politics or tell you if they supported the manly family or this party versus this party uh so when she gets to canada she's just like totally confused about these um 
apolitical Canadians who don't even tell you which party they support. <laughs> right. and it's like a, right. the faux talk politics at the dinner table with friends or whatever. It, it's totally confusing. So she, yeah, she comes out of this very, very deep and rich political culture um, and partly was influenced by the Fabian socialists and the UK, uh, different strands of socialists from the UK Labour Party. So weirdly, because of Jamaica's colonial relationship, Makes sense. like the, not weirdly, but I guess, um, because Canada also had a colonial relationship, but a different colonial relationship, yeah. obviously, as a as an imperial power. Um, but I guess like the, the good elements or the radical elements of the UK Labour Party had more influence in Jamaica. Um, and so essentially what I'm arguing is that the socialist and social democratic tradition is just much richer and stronger in Jamaica as it ever was in, than it ever was in Canada. So I think, although she moves to Canada as a student, um, I think those formative years as a child really, really gave her that, it also gave her that confidence that she was a heavy hitter, despite all the racism and all the sexism mm -hmm. and all the condescension she faced from the old guard of the Canadian Social Democrats. I think she had such a strong foundation because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, my family's doing the real thing. Like, oh, we're yeah. throwing out, totally, we're yeah. throwing out the British. You know, the Manleys were governing Jamaica mm -hmm. all in the '60s and '70s and into the '80s. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, not a not a perfect um, experiment in in. Uh, in terms of a left movement or governance from from the left but um, no but it's like the real the real the element of like we've talked about this like the 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 revolution is not this thing that just like it's like and we 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 throw the people out or we throw the bad people out and we and we're in power and then it's good and then we're all good because like you have to <laughs> yeah. contend with all these other Hopefully outside forces <laughs> you know like it's <laughs> like again like i think like people sort of take a different view of it here because we're used to having all these like sort of democratic whatever's norms um, protected under as, as part of the imperial core or whatever you want to call it. Right. Like the great Satan, all that good stuff. Um, but like, it's, it's, it's so like different when the rubber meets the road and you have to be like any kind of like left-leaning, like anti-imperialist governing body, whatever that is, um, whether you were elected democratically or it happened in an uprising uh, whatever it's like all of a sudden the there's like a million a million guns like literal and metaphysical and metaphorical pointed at you so i think yeah i don't i think it's uh, we're yeah please don't don't feel the need to uh yeah so jamaica social democracy much more developed <laughs> than than canada for sure yeah well nothing exists in a vacuum that's for sure yeah i mean and obviously you, to be more charitable to the the left that tried to form in canada over the years there are other other factors, you know, Jamaica is a, a smaller country with a more like homogeneous experience of the politics of colonial oppression in a sense. And it's an easier left to yeah. unite and to, to give Canada a break, like um, to give the like Wait, real, <laughs> the real, not to give Canada, no, no, we don't believe in giving Canada. Thank you, Wes. No, yeah. no, don't take, Canada doesn't deserve a break. Yeah. The but, generations yeah. of leftists who strove often in isolation in different parts of the country mm -hmm. in sort of facing very different political establishments. And just it's very hard to unite a left wing movement in such a vast um, underpopulated place. So I don't know why I feel like excusing the Canadian left. No, they totally suck compared to <laughs> the, the Jamaican left. And, uh, we're clipping and, this but of course, and we're putting it in an audiogram. <laughs> oh, yeah. but it was just so great. Like, I guess the point I'm making is like, I had to go back and read her memoir 
to get that understanding of her and her politics from Jamaica. That had not, mm-hmm. to be honest, that hadn't occurred to me. No, totally. Like, yeah. and it and and so it certainly didn't occur to these like sort of comfortable paternalistic people in charge of the local riding association. Yeah, the pipe smoking UAW just, guy. Literally, just like it's him on yeah, every yeah. block. The, okay, like, let's yeah, yeah let's <laughs> let's not pick on the constituent, no, the writing association. UAW, you rule. Don't get me wrong. I just yeah. But they just saw. They would have seen her as like what, like uh, a black woman with three kids in her late thirties. Like you can never run for office. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, I was Whereas, yeah. I think like the sexism know, jumped out too. Even like that interview. Well, of course. There's an interview that we'll probably get into more later, but that guy oh, yeah. just I was oh, I was in a bar yeah. watching that and I was like halfway to yelling, like, shut up, dude. Like let yeah. her talk. I think I watched that one too. It was like, wow, the, just the condescending like tone of that guy in that interview. And it was aggressive too. Like it's like to I don't know, maybe it is like that still today, but it just felt like really like well, okay. Like I think yeah, I I think to, to go back to your point, like she clearly had a very clearly developed sense of self and what was right and what was wrong because like she was 21 in 1951 when she um when she emigrated to Canada. It was not until she was a university student, basically. Mm-hmm. So like I think that's right. I think like it's it, you're not talking about a person who was born and raised under this this our regime. It was like in Jamaica when all this unrest was going on, like um it's almost it's it's it, like given everything that's that's the background it's it, it again it becomes less and less surprising as you go on um but i think like it must have been like a shock for her to come to to especially mcgill in 1951 which is like like you know like a quote unquote the enlightened center of canada or whatever like it's probably oh and it's per- it's it's perfect for i mean it, it, it resonates still today sadly of course but like she she talks about coming to McGill and she had had relatives talk up talk up Canada as a place to go and get educated as better than the U.S. because overt racism and, and brutality in the U.S. Um, but she gets to McGill. The first thing that happens to her is that she's booked for a double room for the lesser price in residence, and no one in the residence will share a double room with her because she's black. It's just. And and she later finds out this had happened to other students from the West Indies in, in the the years before her, so they put her in a single room. Literally, her fellow students were all so racist, but in this polite Canadian racism, where people wouldn't run up to her and say something racist, they would just decline yeah, to share. Pass, yeah, yeah, pass, yeah, very pass, 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 pass. polite Canadian polite. racism. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> polite, <laughs> passive, but even in a way even more hurtful and disgusting right. kind of racism yeah it's like the That's guy the that won't fire you to your face mm-hmm. it's a, it's like it's just like the most the it's it's and it's canadians think they're being polite but it's it's the it's so it's like it's the same thing as minnesota nice or whatever it's like well, the, the, students, the students were the students were polite or silent racist mm-hmm. but then the landlords in montreal were just overt racist right. they would just be like we won't rent to you because you're black period and that was just very very common in those days and even when she comes to not even when she, when she comes to vancouver uh again in the later 50s it's the same experience like no one will hire her even though there's in a labor shortage no one will rent her a place like someone with um, a degree and like mm-hmm. get, getting a master's in social work no one will hire her yeah kind of but thing. her husband's a doctor or like going into medical yeah last the last years of medical school and it, it takes them a long time until they find some nice Christians who who take them in, basically. Right, right. Wow. Who who turn out to be lifelong friends, even though they disagree on social issues. Oh and boy. Stuff. So <laughs> the, the big tale. question, Derek, is how was their garden? These nice, <laughs> these nice Christians. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know, but I just I just uh, remember her saying that their rationale for letting them wait for renting to a black couple is that well, in God's eyes, you're all yeah. uh, we're all equal, and and none of us should ever and every sperm is sacred. We'll take that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, so they, did they live in a theme park a too? What did they also? Did she rent? Did she happen to rent a, a, the windmill of a of a Christian theme park? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not the Vanderzam. Uh, <laughs> Damn, family and. Uh, but uh yeah what really comes through in the memoir is like she comes to canada and hates it or is like infuriated and is like she talks about she's very candid in her biography talking about the rage and like you know she'll describe i need to read this book this is this sounds really good it's Mm -hmm. it's uh it's an amazing book and even when they meet the nice the nice canadians and then the social democratic canadians that they meet even those um you know, there's even lots of infuriating stuff with them. Um, she describes uh, a time when someone visited their house, like good comrades from the NDP or something visited their house and they looked in the husband's room and he had a, in the office or whatever, he had a framed uh, photo of Malcolm X or poster of Malcolm X. And they said like, oh, I didn't think you were the type to like Malcolm X or oh. it was, you know, something like that. And they're both Rosemary and her husband were just like, well, you obviously don't understand us at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, she talks in her biography. One of the chapters opens with this very stark description of the night Malcolm X was killed um, in 1965, Hmm. I guess. She starts the chapter of this. It's chronologically a bit uneven, which actually makes it more readable because these she starts chapters off with really interesting anecdotes. It's clearly one of these memoirs that's written by the person whose name was on it. It wasn't like if she had any help, it was... It's clearly her narrative, you know. Yeah, um, maybe some editing in there or something. Yeah, but, maybe a little yeah. editing after the fact. But actually, she took a creative writing for one semester at UBC. So I, I think just it's all her. Good in every house. So Classic. this one chapter, this one chapter is just so memorable. It starts by saying, like, our last child was conceived, or our third child was conceived the night Malcolm X was assassinated. And she talked oh, about wow. like, okay, yeah. about like how her and her husband just really. Um, were very like comforting each other essentially because they were so devastated by Malcolm's uh, death. And she in particular talks about how devastated they were to learn that um, the nation of Islam or, you know, members of his own uh, group, essentially black people had killed Malcolm X. Now, of course we know years later, we know more about the FBI's role and all that. And there was things behind the scenes, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, she just talks about being devastated, even though they didn't agree with his, his politics or the nation of Islam uh, politics and, and religious views um, uh, X as like this powerful orator and, and uh, figure of black power. Um, yeah. It was just devastating for her. And then of course, Martin Luther King a few years later. Um, so she just, she, and she shares very candidly like her grief as a black person, um, what those assassinations did to sort of her view of, of what was possible. Um, right. I guess it didn't it didn't slow down her 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 own uh, political involvement. She quickly gets sort of energized by the women's movement and then from that gets drawn into politics herself. Yeah, because apparently um, so it's, the other thing was in 1967, um, there was one article that I found and it was only one article. And it said uh, by 1967, Rosemary Brown had three children, a master's of social work, a hysterectomy and unyielding depression. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. That's like, I think like the thing that also those official biographies don't get is clearly the toll it took on her being everything all the time, right? Being this mother, 
being this figure in the family and like and it's just like and it it was it's kind of like given off as like a joke like not not a joke per se but like an honest but it kind and then it just kind of bleeds into another article that's a lot more in depth i can't remember which one it was i'll i'll find it and link it but just the fact that they would say those last two parts and i mean obviously this book is well, from her, later, that, that, yeah. that does come from the memoir though right, in the sense right. that, that that's all together in the same chapter she talks about that she's very candid about like uh, birth control issues and yeah um health issues um the, the whole thing's kind of remarkable from that sense like how how much of herself she bears in this in this book um but yeah she was very depressed and it was partly partly it was world events um but partly also she kept getting um, rejected or kind of frustrated in her own career ambitions. So she worked to help her husband through medical school yeah. for like six to eight years, you know, with residency and everything um, moved to Montreal for a year. Cause he had to go back for a residency there. Um, and then, you know, she's, she has these great ambitions. She also has three kids. Um, she's involved in the peace movement, the women's movement, all this stuff. Um, and at age 40, I think it is, she runs for the UBC Board of Governors and loses. She's encouraged to run. She loses. And later that same year or like the next year, she she decides to apply for law school as like a 40-year-old or 41-year-old. <laughs> and she gets rejected because she didn't do well enough on the LSAT. She even talks Jesus about her Christ. LSAT. Like <laughs> <laughs> The only other politician I've heard, um, I've seen talk about their LSAT is Justin Trudeau put it in his memoir <laughs> to like show that he wasn't a That's dumb true. like snowboarding guy. He's like, <laughs> I, I, did, got, I got the LSAT. I'm sorry. I met Justin Trudeau when I was yeah. 19, like before any of this happened. He is a dumb <laughs> snowboarder guy. He was... but, I mean, come on. If you grow up with your dad as the prime minister, you have to be able to get a decent percentile on the LSAT. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> no, and that, well, that shows me speaks to speaks to the the problems with the LSAT you know like and why like a guy like Justin Trudeau can get a very high LSAT and Rosemary Brown can't it's not it's not because one of them it's not because he's smarter than her for sure like it's but the, uh, it's worse it gets worse the same year that they rejected her application on the uh, grounds that her LSAT wasn't good enough they admitted like these older businessmen who were like in their 50s without having to take the LSAT so they like had a special category for people who had contributed to the community, oh, but they yeah. didn't include Rosemary Brown. <laughs> had, like uh, contributed to the community. I'm making the <laughs> little money rubbing fingers, <laughs> yeah. listeners. You can't see it, but <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's really lucky that she didn't get into law school at UBC because that leaves her sort of at loose ends and open to recruitment. She becomes the volunteer ombudsperson for the bank for, for the socialist cult. Women. Yeah, no, we got uh, no. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> no, no, don't disparage. Uh, don't disparage her by association. No, no, of course um, not. She becomes yeah. So she's working as a volunteer ombudsperson, and then she she starts getting recruited um, to run for office. Even at one point, the Liberal Party of BC, which was sort of a small centrist party at the time, they were actually liberals, not right wing, or not fully right wing yet, because the Socreds were the right wing, right? As we were talking about earlier, even the Liberal Party asked her to run, and then the NDP asked her to run, and um, yeah, and then they pressured her not to run once they realized she was going to be backed by some radical people. Um, yeah, they yeah. wanted so someone. They wanted someone they could like. They could put in, say, a a a, a mostly ceremonial role that uh, would then yeah. mollo like make it easier for young people who were a lot more radical and wanted to see those kinds of people in power swallow. You know, a white man who 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 was very, you know, sort of like not that radical on most issues his entire life that was very clear in politics 
I'm not, you know. Yeah. 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 And interestingly, like she talks about how she, her first time to the legislature in Victoria, it was actually the premier Dave Barrett or not, not the premier to be the MLA Dave Barrett, the NDP leader, um, along with another MLA kind of stopped her as she's leaving the legislature. She was there to testify on some committee about women's rights. Mm -hmm. Um, and they kind of came as she was leaving and were like, Hey, we'd like you to consider running for the NDP. You're like such a good speaker. You know, you should, you should do it. And that was, that was interesting because, you know, she ends up throughout her time in office, especially when they were in government, um, in that, uh, you know, probably the most left-wing NDP government that there's been in history. Um, in 72 to 75, I guess it was. Um, Rosemary yeah. ends up clashing a lot and clashing publicly with Dave Barrett because of his sort of paternalistic refusal to to start a women's, uh, to, so to declare them. a women's ministry, to have a minister of women's equality. Essentially, Dave Barrett uh, says, oh, we don't believe in having a women's minister because uh, human right, women's rights are human rights. Right. And we're all yeah. like, he's just giving this really weak, weak uh, talking point. Which again, I think like going, I, I would like to talk more about Dave Barrett a bit and sort of like the government that Rosemary was yeah. sort of a part of and clashed with. Mm. Um, a, I think like, yeah, like, so you said the social credits, which we talked about before the recording. Um, and then the Dave Barrett NDP, I think like we're sort of this, this was also something that I didn't know about not being originally from here, but like the history of the social credit party in the NDP in in the time period just before rosemary came over like the, and and like yeah tell us a little bit about dave barrett i guess um yeah well i mean aside like growing up in a place where the socred premier lived in a fantasy castle fantasy garden yeah. castle mm-hmm. um the the ndp government of the 70s was like this mythical thing and i had a grandfather who was very political um and had been like a ccf ndp socialist of some kind his whole life and he would talk about dave barrett as like that was those were the those were the glory years you know when dave barrett was empowered everything good in bc that we had came from dave barrett, dave barrett. the sea bus like public toilets yeah, he, like, or, a you ton know, of stuff every, <laughs> icbc like public toilets <laughs> aren't the top but he famously banned seems paper. like there was a missed Sorry, opportunity oh, there. okay <laughs> um yeah IC, icbc um the human rights code um well, anyway, it's a long list, and there are some great articles in Jacobin and other places about that history. Um, but Dave Barrett was like this mythical figure. Um, and I, yeah, the, the, I got to see him as a maybe a teenager. He was speaking. He might have even spoken at an event when my uh, friend was running federally in 2004. But anyway, to see Dave Barrett speak as a retired politician was like, that was one of our legends. So what's really interesting about the learning the whole Rosemary Brown story is that she's really clashing with the heroes that were that were indoctrinated uh, or that were, you know, our heroes on the social democratic left, the Tommy Douglases, the Dave Barrett's, when they appear in the story, they're usually at loggerheads or trying to contain Rosemary or upset that Rosemary is going to speak out about something or patronizing her about something. Um, it's shocking. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's shocking to see uh, Dave Barrett in that light because his sexism was like, by today's standards, his and you know even back then his sexism was quite blatant. Like it was, and it was PR part training. of his like trick, where it's like the the mainstream uh, press kind of liked this socialist Dave, uh, you know, Fat Dave the socialist because like, he, he was would a have guy a that someone could have boy. a beer with. 
And, yeah, and he was the beer on the bus with the boys. And thing. in the seventies, that also included like that's like the guy like we was still had that problem with most of the guys you could have a beer with is like sexism, casual racism, and not even the stuff that's like you know calling people slurs or anything. It's like this is still the archetype. Like where I grew up, I'm from like rural Alberta, and it was the same thing. It was like I want a candidate I can have a beer with, and that means like yeah, for some of you, that means a candidate you can make really inappropriate jokes with. Like that's what some of them mean. So yeah, I, and again, not to discredit Dave Barrett or anything his government did in the large or like whatever, because it it just seems like the only time a, awesome. a socialist or s- social democratic or whatever sort of like <laughs> very left even for elected office, like they ran an aggressive campaign because he said like he the joke the story is that he jumped yeah. on the table and slid Love across. It. He said, "Are you here for a long time or a good time?" I don't know if we're gonna get reelected. So what are we gonna do with that? And it's like. Can you imagine again, like even the guys that were fighting Rosemary? Yeah. Like those were the guys that were like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna fight, we're gonna come out guns blazing. And no, like nobody on the left in like the electoral left, even the ones that are considered radical, have done that yet in our current like resurgence with Sanders or Corbin or whoever, right? Like we haven't had like a candidate like that with the both like the the pro the pros and the cons of it. So yeah. Same with Rosemary, yeah. right? Like we haven't had a candidate like that, um, like a black woman who's like very radical, rising to that level in a long time, it seems to me. And not that there aren't yes. those candidates, it's just they don't they don't rise like that, right? So yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, not to just we can talk the show is not the subject is not the contradictions of Dave Barrett or or that government. Um, but the contrast with today to me that drives me bonkers is that like today you can't even get a backbench at NDP MLA to criticize anything. Like even if it's not coming to a vote in the legislature, yeah. the NDP caucus has incredible discipline about not criticizing the party or not criticizing the premier. What's refreshing about this, like, okay, he was like, on one hand, there was a lot of casual sexism and that's gross. But on the other hand, there was maybe a certain like confidence in allowing people to argue in public or like, right. Even, even joke with each other um, or joke with the press, like, um, and kind of, there was like, there was just a more freewheeling discussion. Every, um, every, and, politician, and every politician didn't have like their manicured talking points that they clearly got from, you know, like a, a person, a, a consultant or whatever, PR training. Everyone's got the PR training now in a way that they didn't in the 70s. Like it just, yeah, it just feels like a more vibrant democratic discussion. Like, so Dave Barrett at one point tells the media, look, I know Rosemary and everyone's making noise about starting a ministry of women's equality or whatever, uh, but that's just not our priority. That's not our priority. He says a couple times like that. So the women's caucus. Um, Here we are. We're just like, yeah, it's just like a more freewheeling press. And he's like, yeah, women aren't our priority. Deal with it. No, so no, no, no. no. Yeah, I think like part. no, but I. Yeah, but John Horgan says dumb stuff all oh, the time. Oh, John Horgan <laughs> is they, they, that man no, does not belong no in front of the, the camera. No one from the NDP caucus comes no, out and rips him. Not yeah, so, exactly. That's so Dave what, Barrett says this dumb thing about like, hey, it's not a priority. What are we gonna do? And then like, you know, the next month the Women's Caucus starts a new magazine called Priorities. Ah, uh, and then it's uh, best yes. troll. <laughs> That's yeah, and right? that's and then that runs for years, and they openly clash with the party, even though the party's governing. So, it's like today, that just wouldn't today, those people would just be kicked out. Well, do or you those, think yeah. that? Do you think that the changes and how that's changed was a partly a response to Rosemary? Do you think that was like 
something that that it, like it feels to me like the, the whatever ha, whatever the NDP is now was clearly that's the thing about like all social movements is anyone who pushes for radical change there's a there's a pushback to them that's like sort of like in a way tailored to that response right like I think like that's something that could be talked about more but it's like clearly some of this was in like the the defenses they've now built up were at least partly a response to Rosemary doing this it seems like yeah, yeah, maybe, but I think there are also longer-term trends within social democracy yeah. and within political parties in general to like professionalize and centralize. But also, like saying it that way potentially lets the current MLAs off the hook. Like, yeah, the, there are popular like MLAs that like, for example, and not to pick on her because she's one of the best, uh, but like Bowen Ma is a well-deserved, very popular uh, elected representative. If she came out and ripped Horgan on something like fossil fuel subsidies, she would get so much support for it. It would. I don't think it would hurt her re-election chances. Right. The party hierarchy would would freak out and probably try to punish her in some ways. But like, I feel like some of these elected people who have, you know, they've built up a mandate and they've built up support and they've had a lot of, um, uh, they've benefited from a lot of energy from left activists yeah. helping them get into power. Like, I think they have a responsibility to they don't all have like not everyone's going to have rosemary's hard you know heavy hitter confidence or brashness yeah. to to push back but like they have a responsibility to like criticize their own party or find ways to do it so yeah i don't want to totally let them off the hook by saying the party's structure has changed so you much heard it there's from, always yeah. there's always room to be courageous and there's nothing stopping someone going on twitter right now and no, I, like I do agree. There are flashes. There are glimmers. Yeah, there are there's, little there's bits. Little, there's, yeah, for I sure. I think we're kind of In the federal that. party, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and even out east, too, right? Like, I think, like, I guess mm -hmm. that that's what I'm looking at is probably federal MPs. Um, like, and again, like, it feels like they had to be, I think part of it, too, is, like, I don't think there's a consistent presence out here that pushes them to do that. Like, I do feel like some of the candidates out east maybe are only now starting to say things that, people were pushing them to say two or three years ago um, in the federal party, I think specifically, like obviously the breaking of the consensus on, on uh, the Palestinian situation is like a, a big one and you can start to see it now, but I think it's also maybe opened the floodgates in a way for more stuff like this. So I, I, I hope that, I think that's part of it too, is like, you know, as much as we can blame our MPs once they're in power, like where is, where is our, where is the support for, for candidates to do that? Right. Like, Will it emerge? I hope so, but it's hard to say, you know, we need to be push, pressuring them before they do that, right? Like pressuring them to do that. And I don't know, maybe there is more of a movement. I just haven't seen it out West so far. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that or anyone's thoughts are on that. Well, I feel like I, Derek, yeah, I feel like go ahead. British Columbia probably didn't deserve rosemary brown um i that might be i i don't want to ruffle any feathers or anything but i feel oh, like no. she ruffle, was ruffle kind of feathers. wasted on us yeah on and when i say us i mean like western canada but yeah. to bring in for somebody like that you wonder why that that's her potential that's why we don't hear more about her because she you know she didn't she didn't move to like chicago or philadelphia or like uh one of these like hotbeds of of like activism or something like that but uh yeah i don't know yeah i mean those are also big ponds right yeah even even for true. a big fish true, true. arguably but i just feel like but you know 
it's 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 strange though because it seems like she did she pushed the needle like for a lot of things while in like oh, the no, time no. she was yeah. in office so it's don't get me wrong yeah it's well, and she didn't, like she, we didn't deserve her yeah, yeah no, she, and then it's like, like i feel like we gave her a stamp uh but i mean i no. think there are I think, yeah, I think it's like Joe, you said, like, yeah, we, you were kind of just finding out about her now. It's like, I'm embarrassed to say that <laughs> when I was reading the first topic from this, I read Rosemary Brown and I was like, is that the chicken? Is that Rose? Is that Mary Brown? No. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Wes. Wow. Okay. Went there. I was like, Mary Brown's chicken. No. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I was like, I, she was not my radar at all. And, well, and she wasn't. It, it, she didn't just finish in 1975. Like she wasn't like Derek said no. earlier, she was an MLA till 1986. Like, and then she, it sounds like she sort of retired. Right. And like, even after that, I think like, so she, like, De like Derek said, like she started off, she was in the party criticizing gave Barrett. And then she, she runs for the leadership, doesn't get it. And then stays in MLA sort of whatever, like under the Ed Broadbent government at least till 1986. And then, and then she just, and it's not like she just stopped. Like, I think the rest of the video specimens that I'll put like, that I'll put in the links are like all the stuff that appears that she, where she's appears on TV is post 1975. It's like in the eighties, she's still like a, a mm -hmm. figure who gets on TV and talks about women in poverty, specifically talking about the the imbalance the gender imbalance when it comes to poverty of how many women are in poverty like they made a documentary mm -hmm. about it called no way not me which will also link and we should talk about that in a bit but yeah she does she doesn't just disappear after 1975 either like she has a long career and no. is sort of like like derek said like sort of this like like she she's pushing from the left to push the ndp more or pushing from the she's she's trying to pull the ndp more left even as this big right. neoliberal shift is going on. Right. I think that's something that like, even as you watch her go on into the eighties, you see sort of like, we're talking like all of a sudden Reagan and Thatcher are in power, like Mulroney's in power federally. And I think, yeah, the Dave Barrett government lost. And then I, I'm not sure about the rest, Derek, maybe you could fill us in on that, but like. The Stokreds basically rule from there until the 1991. The oh, NDP wow. gets, okay. so, so it's like yeah. 16 years of Stokred. And, the social, and then yeah. after the brief 1990s NDP, not that brief, but NDP in the 1990s, and then another 16 years of BC Liberal right-wing government. Yeah. But I just think, like, it's got to be remembered that she all of a sudden, like, whatever her flashpoint was in 1975 when she ran for leadership, it was all of a sudden this, like, reactionary backlash across the world. And I think that's still, mm -hmm. like, that has to be considered. And, like, even the stuff she does, like that No Way Not Me documentary is great, but it's basically, like, this is how many women are in poverty. Um, we need more women to go into the workforce to ensure they don't end up in poverty. It was, that wasn't mm -hmm. like what it was saying, but it was like, education is one way you can. And like, that's something that my parents told me, right. Growing up and my parents were like quite liberal, like, yeah, the only way you can ensure like, and I don't think that was necessarily Rosemary Brown's message. I think like, that's, that's what ended up happening or whatever, but it's like, you turn into this period where all of a sudden, even more so, a radical message is not welcome. All of a sudden it's like, a, it's just associated with, all, it has all these negative associations like Malcolm X or whoever, or like other things that are going on in the late, late seventies, early eighties. So yeah, I just think yeah, it's, that's but, true. The seventies and sort of the 1980s, if the seventies saw a lot of these sort of like mini red scares within the NDP, where there would be like a purging or the establishment coming together to stop a really left-wing 
insurgent takeover of the NDP. By the 1980s, that threat is gone, but also like Ed Broadbent is the leader of the NDP until all through the 80s, until the I think the early 90s, he, he sticks around. Right. I, I forget what year he quits. Anyway, all through the 80s, it's Ed Broadbent. But by then, like the differences between like the left of the party and Ed Broadbent in a way are narrowed because like, or, or like people who had been purged in the 70s come back to the party anew because it's like, well, some of, this is just a place we can keep up the fight against a sort of extreme Mulroney, Thatcher, Reagan right, yeah. uh, wave that is. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're, in her memoir, there's pictures of her advising Ed Broadbent in 1986. Well, it's like in and, a way the uh, same it, way that the like, you know, whatever happens in the primary, like um, Bernie Sanders sure, yeah, is still right. working on his, the committee or whatever, and he'll come out and warm like lukewarmly endorse like a, a pro the pro act or whatever right like or whatever joe yep. biden's agenda is in order to get what he needs to shore up because like that's the, and the same thing happened under trump like which was more democratic specifically but it was like you yes. had the blue waves and all that like there is sort of this whether it's successful or not this sort of like lower level like fe- like federal state provincial municipal sort of like resistance to the larger like the whatever's coming down from the federal government that's quite reactionary so yeah 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 no uh, for sure and i was just going to say in his uh, autobiography ed broadbent is it actually i'm not sure if it's his biography or maybe one of those authorized biographies right anyway in, in ed's how many book, biographies says, do you have in your house right now <laughs> he says nice things about rosemary brown you know you know and he he talks about how he learned from rosemary brown about the feminist oh, yeah. and anti-racist movement mm-hmm. you know after accepting right. the establishment, Set backing the and crushing her, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> in 1975, then he mm-hmm. learned a lot. He learned, um, but no, no, he looks good as a footnote. <laughs> yeah, and so I think, yeah, in that in that sense, mainstream social democracy or the mainstream of the NDP honors Rosemary Brown as a historic figure. But so, yeah, she is on stamps. There is like. Uh, a park mm. named after her. The provincial s- government does talk about her. I think there's an arena the in Burnaby named after her. Yeah, yeah. they just built yeah. a new arena yeah. <laughs> named after her. That's sweet. Um, but what they need to do is like mass produce, bring her book back into print and like send it to all potential candidates and be <laughs> like, here's what you need to live up to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Just looking at like some of the things, like just from 79 to 83 with some of her work and like some of that was while she was a member of like the NDP government. But uh, so she sponsored legislation, which created provincial committee to eliminate sexism in textbooks and educational curricula. She was also instrumental in establishing the Burger Commission, which I'm actually not. What is the Burger Commission on the family? What did that do exactly? I'm not familiar with it. I don't know, but yeah. uh, whatever Tom Berger was involved with is usually uh, progressive. <laughs> he died, uh, I think, earlier this year. He was the okay. the the but lawyer who the... Um, sort of pushed for Canadian for indigenous sovereignty, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And he was briefly the leader of the provincial NDP before Dave Barrett. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, weird weird turn of events that he was no longer the leader, and then Barrett kind of came from nowhere. He easily could have been premier of uh, Tom Berger. But he went on to do all this important legal work. So I'm guessing that was, um, yeah, actually, I don't want to guess what yeah. the commission was. <laughs> I, I believe sure it was the pipeline. The pipeline was like something the good. Yeah. It was for the, the, family. The, yeah. the Calder yeah. case. It was about, it, it essentially, recog- it was a, a, a group of indigenous tribes, the Niska mostly, um, who didn't want a pipeline on their land. Ah, uh, okay. So, was, no, that commission, but the commission on the family? 
Oh, the Burger uh, Commission on the yeah, Family. Yeah, it says it on the Family. Oh, yeah, so that might oh, be man. something different. But in any case, that and introducing legislation which would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex or marital status, her efforts contribute directly to an increase in the number of women represented on boards, commissions, and directorates throughout British Columbia. So she did some stuff. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah, it feels like, but again... Like, oh, go ahead, Craig. Getting to, like, the structural... the the you know, the PowerPoints, the points in which power is concentrated right. in our society's institutions, right? And filling them with females or making it easier for females right. and maybe non-white um, people for to sure. fill those positions, yeah. which is the, like, yeah, exactly and I what's think required, right? That speaks to, like, her, um, what is that? that quote from her speech, the I'll find it is right here. Uh, like to be black and female in a society, which is both racist and sexist is to be in the unique position of having nowhere to go, but up. So it's like that it's like speaks from when you're right? like, yeah, when you're yeah. in a position, like, and she talks about intersectionality so much, which is like, yeah, the, sometimes the unique, uh, your unique social statuses, like your like race, gender, or whatever, sexual orientation, yeah, like pulling a Kimberly Crenshaw, yeah, these, these different complexities and like, yeah, social status for Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah. Well, creating yeah. unique situations for like racism and different, uh, ways of discrimination to like crop up and, and, uh, yeah, make your life really not, not that great. And that, that quote uh, is from a speech she gave, I think, in 1973. So she's in the Barrett government, but she's invited to Ontario to give a speech to some big g- gathering of uh, bigwigs. I forget the the organization, but like the governor general of Ontario, the mayor of Toronto are all in the audience. So I think she describes it in her memoir as a mostly white audience. But she's written this speech about like black liberation, <laughs> global struggle for socialists. She talks about being a socialist in that speech. Wow. Um, so she describes being like utterly nervous, but also she talks about how she developed this approach to invitations like that. She's like, whenever I got invited to give a speech to any group like this, especially where I didn't think they would agree with me, I would always say to myself, I don't care to get like, I'm paraphrasing from her memoir here, but don't care if you get invited back for a second speech, just tell them everything they need to hear, whether they right. want to hear it or not. Yeah. And so, she's, so she describes this as her favorite speech or like her most important speech she ever gave because she just like let her rip in front of the Canadian establishment. Yeah, It goes to Craig's point. Yeah. You see, she was wasted in BC. Yeah, She needed to be like giving it to the uh, to central Canada, you know, giving it to the power centers. Well, Big yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, oh, she man. needed to be prime minister, right? That's our counterfactual history. Yeah, totally. Right? That's, yeah, that's the like the utopian strain. The, the history that just went yeah. super like, well, I guess not well. Cause I'll be all, all the bad stuff. I don't know. This is a, this is, I'm not, I shouldn't have started and constructing she t- she a timeline. Talks at length that, yeah. She no, but she talks even before she run, runs for leader or before she even gets convinced to run provincially, she talks at length about how she was only really wanted to run federally because at first her plan in life was like to get educated in Canada, go back in Jamaica and be part of the political movement there. So her next best thing was like, well, I'll go to Ottawa. I'll be part of like bringing in a progressive government in Canada and we can like help the global South and we can be part of the international um, thing. So she was very much like thinking along those lines. And then, yeah, things happened in her life and family. And she, we were lucky that she, we were lucky as I guess lifers here on the West coast, like me, we're lucky that we have her legacy 
here as part of our history. But yeah, it kind of sucks for the broader left that she didn't end up in Ottawa. Yeah, I think too, yeah. that's 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 really interesting to know that she had those federal uh, like mm-hmm. ambitions, which is really like that. Again, that's also something that's not brought up, right? It's never brought up that she was like, other than, yeah, she ran for leadership. But it's like, yeah, like her, 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 whatever is sort of downplayed. Like that's always kind of the way they do it with these figures, like Rosemary Brown. It's like you know, um, you know, um, uh, the woman who, Viola Davis, the woman who, not Viola Davis, the actress, the woman who got Angela on the bus. Davis. Oh yeah, oh Ro- Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. <laughs> yeah, Joe, come on, <laughs> get your shit together. Like no, uh, Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond was the one in Canada, and those were not oh, okay. like they sort of play it off in this, in, in the official histories. It's like, it was just a woman who was pissed and didn't want to give up. Just a one off. But it was not, <laughs> it was like, it was like a movement wolf. of people, <laughs> a movement of black, black people who, in the U S and Canada who were going onto buses and deliberately sitting in the whites only sections to provoke mm-hmm. those. And it was only when, you know, As it wasn't even the first tactic, one, yeah. it was like right. a deliberate action. And it's like, that's the thing that gets sort of like, Mm-hmm. rounded down and smoothed off in these official histories it's like and she did the thing yeah. and she pushed for the thing and it was all roses after that and like she did it and now right. you don't have to do it and it's like no she was like she was like you know elbowing and 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 shoving her way into the power structure in a way that like freaked everybody out and made everybody really angry or at least like you know moved everything around right it's and you know she didn't like suddenly one woman like her alone isn't going to overcome that it's going to take a, not only much a bunch of individuals like that but people who are sort of like connected like obviously like you said like she was encouraged to run even if people thought she was just supposed to be like you know a good put a put a new face on the democratic party but like she was brought into this there was at least a little bit of like well we need her you know like we need her in this structure for this reason and like she's 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 appealing enough that like we can't just ignore her and it, and again, it didn't take it didn't just take one thing. It took like her being raised in the right household, her coming to Canada at the right time, where these conditions are not the right time, but like the time where these conditions were a certain way, and she was instantly struck with what she needed to do. And then you know she had to support her husband, but it was important to her to support her husband, so she went to UB to BC instead of staying in Ottawa, right? And that's like a big decision, but she did that, and she still was elbowing her way into power. Like there are all these concessions she had to make. Like you said, Derek, she had these federal ambitions that never happened because she was also living the life of a woman in the seventies in Canada, a black woman. Right. Um, And so it's just like, it's just like, yeah, like she was wasted on BC in that way too. Not just in the way that like people wouldn't listen, but that like there were all these socioeconomic factors dragging her down the entire time. I'm interested to know, like if she were to run today, (laughs) Do you think she would win, and in which, like, or, or say what riding would you parachute her? I was gonna say, just put it like in, in every province. Do you think she? Do you think she could win in any province, or like just BC? Or would she even win in BC today? I don't know. I'd for like sure. to say we, yes, she would. We'd round up a lot of volunteers for uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a candidate that would flock to. I, I think people are ready for that much more radical message. I think that's part of the lesson of the Bernie Corbin defeats is like, that's the first wave, but it shows that even like, um, I mean, Corbin certainly shows that even like a, not that charismatic sort of, uh, figure with the right policies and being bold enough can like 
create a movement or, or spark a movement. So I think candidates like Rosemary, if they could get through the party vetting yeah. gar- garbage, would uh, <laughs> could win. Yeah, may- maybe not in Tell every us your feelings on let's, the, uh, the be... NP, N- NDP party yeah. apparatus. Okay. That's a big if. Just let it out, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, Rosemary would have to delete all of her tweets for sure. Uh, oh my God, I wish, I wish she was around when Twitter. Started. She would have been an amazing follow. Uh. But I was gonna say, like about the socioeconomic thing. One thing was like, she was from a family that was like, like well off in their their own way. Like in Jamaica, yeah, her, yeah, mm. in, in Jamaica. There was um, one source that mentioned, yeah, again, her she she came from like a quote-unquote middle-class family and i don't know what that would mean in the context of jamaica maybe you know a bit from the biography but like yeah her, her that... more extended family was in, in some cases quite well off her grandmother was was well off for sure and was kind of the head of the broader family um group and then you know her husband does eventually get a medical practice going and so at a certain point they're right around the time she gets elected they've just been able to buy a house after like 20 years of dealing with racist mm-hmm. landlords in canada right and like having to find good Christians to take them in. Um, they buy a house on West 11th Avenue, uh, almost in like West Point Gray. For, and then she she mentions in her memoir, we were really stressed out about having a $15,000 mortgage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man, <laughs> man. <laughs> what? Excuse me? Well, well so like in those days, <laughs> in those days, if you were a young doctor and a social worker, you could like buy a house in West Point, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and eventually, yeah. I think they moved to an even nicer house. Um, I mean, I think it speaks yeah. to also, yeah, the deteriorating conditions here. Like, like not only like whatever about like politicians getting more polished and the NDP apparatus getting more ruthless, but like the so the the economic conditions in Vancouver make it hard for a mother of three. Whose, whose husband is also working like as a doctor to establish themselves in Vancouver and and get a house and just live a, a, a life, much less like do all this stuff, right? It speaks to the different conditions today that not only are we not maybe seeing more Rosemary Browns get through the party apparatus, but also they can't even, they're not even in a position necessarily to challenge the apparatus for whatever reason, because they they've decided to move to uh abbotsford or not even abbotsford like you know what i'm going back to toronto that's where the rest of my family is you know i'm going whatever right like it's just it's just the the conditions here in vancouver are so much harder for those challenges to rise up from even the middle class i guess is what i'm saying yeah yeah and part of like being able to get elected in politics is being rude being able to be rooted and stable in a community yeah and also like being able to like take a leave from your job to campaign is, is another thing that requires some economic stability. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with young people being so precarious, like, and just the working class being so precarious in general, yeah, people don't stay in the same housing. Mm-hmm. They don't stay in the same city. Um, yeah, it'd be very hard, but it, definitely just on the question of like her politics today, I think, you know, and in some respects, there's an even, I think, wider radicalization on some issues today i mean west because as you said like look at the what's happening to the planet it's just sort of people are radicalizing just based on that i think yeah yeah to some extent so i think we will see well i just yeah, i'm I, recalling a quote a about turnout. all that is holy and profane uh melting away something like that i can't i can't i don't maybe i'm just I'm just <laughs> spitballing. That's, you know like suddenly will, you come into sober like sober senses it's a relations with your own kind and you're just like, whoa, I better do something about this. Yeah. 
It's like, huh? I don't know how that, I don't know. That just popped into my head. There, Maybe yeah. we can do something about this. Yeah. So how does the anxiety about the ecological situation and maybe some of the f- um, hot spots in terms of, um, you know, like the pushback from white supremacy and from, um, from the reactionary corners of society, you know, how does that translate into an electoral platform that people can support in the way that kind of Rosemary Brown seemed to provide uh, in her time um, in, in, you know, her electoral career, um, whether or not she had quite the support that we would have hoped at the time or whatever, or, and the, the dynamics around that notwithstanding, but how, how did, in your, in your opinion, Derek, how does that translate into electoral success? I mean, not not even necessarily in the short term, not over the course of one election, but like a movement that can sustain, like you were alluding to with, you know, the the Bernie and um, and the uh, Corbyn references, you know, in in Western Canada, in Canada in general, does does it look similar? Um, is does it? I don't know. What what does that look like for you? Your thoughts, sir, on the, the socioeconomic times we live in. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Canada, it's a, it's a, maybe it comes just down to that, like, being less politically coherent in terms of a left across the country. But I feel we're still at it like a, we're not nearly at the level where the, the organizers behind the Bernie and Corbyn campaigns were even before they started yeah in I the totally sense agree. Of like um just like being involved in vancouver municipal politics and kind of like the far left trying to run insurgent campaigns um a big problem we had was as simple as like none of the cool people want to run for office it's just like an alien concept that anything good could come from running for office either personally or politically um, right like, like right down so to the municipal like level. I was involved in, yeah, I mean, I was involved in the early efforts to support Gene Swanson and an elder sort of like local Bernie figure in a way. For sure. Uh, yeah. Been around for a long time. And, you know, um, she eventually got elected. But a big challenge, like after she first ran um, or ran again in 2017, it was like Gene would go and, and myself and others would go to young activists like radicals who were working to defend Chinatown from gentrification or younger indigenous activists and like ask them if they wanted to run for city council on a radical platform. Mm -hmm. And they would just be like, like electoral politics. No, that's a no, no, that is not cool. Like, okay, Jean might be a cool lady trying to do good stuff, but like, that's not somewhere I want to go. Well, and it's, I think like that's, yeah, I don't want to like, I think it's, it must be hard to make that decision. I think we talked about this in a meeting one time with a DSOV, like the Democratic Socialists of Vancouver was like making sure that we build a, sort of like, w- like, again, this is sort of like a something we talk about as like something we'd like to get to eventually, not something we can just do right now is like build an apparatus that not only um, gets pe- radical people to run, but also sort of protects them from what's going to come back at them. Right. Like in whatever yeah. way, whether that's material sport, et cetera, it's like that's that's starting to get to the point where it's like 
it's tested and tried in the States. Mm -hmm. And we're not even, we haven't even done that yet. We haven't had like the first one. Like I just find it's like, so I don't, again, like I totally, I want on one hand, like, yeah, it's, it's like people have to rise up. And like what you said, like MLAs have to show more courage, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. like, how can we as sort of whatever we are like working, you know, like not all of us are organizers. How can people, how can people encourage, I guess, you know, make sure that there's like a support there for candidates who can run and stuff. Sorry. I, that's probably a whole other question that you're already asked. You, we already asked you a huge question, but it feels like that's a big part of it is like, we need to build a network that supports these candidates in a way that mm-hmm. is really effective. Right. Yeah. Cause like you mentioned, it's a huge in like running for office. Well, if you're running for a major office, it's going to be a huge investment. Like you have well, to like even, take time off work. And municipal like, yeah. Office like, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times maybe these, these maybe young progressive candidates that are like doing this grassroots stuff see it's like almost like they're they feel like they're being removed from like doing work that's like actually helping people maybe while they're doing this campaigning and running for office and things like that so it's like they're not Mm -hmm. exactly fired up to make that switch maybe but yeah yeah. it gets sucked into the machine yeah 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 because they're just out there and there have been a lot of examples of people going sort of one-off and saying like, oh, I'm going to go get an NDP nomination and get elected. And like, I'll be the person who doesn't sell out or I will be the one who doesn't get co-opted and silenced. Um, but then they just dis- disappear. Yeah. So it's like, there's something, it's not about finding the right candidates so much as it is about building those like groups of radicals who mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. engage with the electoral field and can like go in as a group, like, and it is described in terms of mm. the process of getting Rosemary to run provincially. There's like, she describes like, you know, some of the hacks told her to run, but then once they saw that she was going to run, they started like discouraging her. Oh yeah. But then yeah. like she goes one night and it's like this group of like 10 people in an apartment somewhere and they're grilling her. Like, She's like, they seem like they were looking for the perfect candidate. These people are like extreme leftists is how she described them. And, uh, and it turned out like people were like, oh yeah, that's like a group of like hardcore leftists, but you know, they think you're left enough and they're willing to like throw in behind you. And they actually know how to campaign. Like, so whichever organized group that was that met with her, like without groups of radicals like that, who both have good politics and are willing to like, like try, uh, uh, try these insurgent campaigns, not necessarily with perfect candidates, um, but with people who are w- open to those politics. Um, unless you have those groups behind you, no individual, it's not about an individual being pure enough or well-intentioned, well-intentioned yeah. enough. Um, and yeah, and then also as Wes and others are saying, like, it's just a huge life um, mm-hmm. burden to take. And if you don't know people who have run for office and survived, uh, or, you know, had a good experience, then, you know, it, it's hard for the, that first wave. So I feel like we're still at that, like, we're like the pre 2016, uh-huh. uh, Bernie left in that, like Bernie had to do a crazy thing. And then that inspired AOC. And then that inspired other groups of, you know, other groups of candidates to primary all these other corrupt politicians. And then eventually you have enough organized groups that there's like a sharing of capacities and like a scaling up of, of what you can do. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, something, something like that. And, um, I don't know. I forget the rest of the question. Uh, that's just that's basically what you're describing, what, yeah. it, what it looks like or what you think it will look right. like I in think, Western Canada when that wave 
kind of starts to take shape or begins to start oh, yeah. cresting or whatever. But yeah, I, yeah, that was and great. I think Thank the you. other oh, sorry, the other part of it is if those, those sort of like organized forces and whatever, whatever, however they're organized, if they're strong enough to like get good people elected, get activists to run for office, they also that's part of it. They also have to be strong enough to hold those people to account. Yeah. And to like, like Joe was saying, like, give those people the courage to speak out. Like, like I am convinced that I don't know why I'm coming back to Bowen Mob, but pe people just generally of all walks of NDP, all persuasions of NDPers like Bowen Mob. She's a, she's an admirable politician. Like, I feel like she'd be more outspoken on certain issues if there was a better organization at the base pushing. Right. Um, but there'd just be like a lot, of, and there'd be a lot more. Um, there, the political courage doesn't just come from an individual being courageous. Like political courage mm -hmm. also comes from well, I think, from knowing that there's a reward yeah. and a punishment <laughs> from an organized it goes group, back you know to, what I mean? Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to keep... It's not just that these people are bad and sell out, that they shut up when they get elected. No, totally. It's that they're under like under enormous social and in some cases economic and, and other kinds of pressure. And when the struggle gets really heightened, they'll be under threat of mm -hmm. violence or um you know assassination attempts what whatever will happen when things are at a much higher level and especially yeah. if they are not only a, a woman but like black or a, you know a person of color indigenous mm -hmm. uh queer disabled etc like those people deserve to have their voices heard as much as anyone and deserve to be able to mm -hmm. run as candidates free of all of the shit that comes with it right and like yeah obviously we can't change the conditions well, yeah you can't there's no free of it no you can't guarantee yeah. that but you have to guarantee there'll be an organized like people will have their back. Uh -huh. And essentially and they'll organized. have, again, right. like Rosemary had like this family that was like, you're not crazy. No, this is like, no, it's the you, the <laughs> universe is, is wrong and we are here to fix it, right? Like, I think like it takes not only a family like that, which is a really great first step, but like, again, like there are people that don't have families like that. It's not their fault and they need, and again, or whatever, right? People with families like that also need a further network of support. Like it goes back to sort of like, I think organizing you can't just organize with you know the 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 prime minister in mind you know even if even if you if you're accepting electoral politics is a framework and like do we have enough time whatever it doesn't really matter that's it's like okay so we're we're going to put a candidate in that eventually we want to get to the federal level well it's not just the federal level it's like they have to run other races first and they have to have these organizations and all of a sudden we're talking about like we need to build in our communities first like not only our neighborhoods but our cities and like, and build networks there and, and not in a way that's like condescending, but also like recognizes that these support networks need to be in place from the ground up for all of this to happen. Right. Like all of the things that happened that led Rosemary Brown to the point she was, were because of this sense of community and this sense of resistance, I think too, that was, was not second only, nature to her it was, as an activist and organizer. It was something and, that she knew she mm -hmm. could rely on. Whereas Badassly. like, I don't know that a lot of everyone has that. And we need to build that for not only candidates that look like me, mm -hmm. but candidates that look like Rosemary or whoever, right? Or like that's it's like how it's almost like you can't, it's so much of it, I think from, from what Derek was saying from, from like the biography that she's reading, but so much of that was like ingrained from her, I think from just like the, the socioeconomic, like situation she grew up in. It's like, I think it's hard to instill that kind of, sense into people that don't grow up in that situation so it's like yeah totally that's, that's probably what's, one of the reasons why cool her tone it's slow but yeah yeah i mean what's cool is she also talks about how nervous she was at different times in her political career 
or how the, the she talks about the morning after she got elected um she was just in total shock and like couldn't get out of bed telegrams were phone calls were coming from all yeah. over canada like this is this historic thing the, the black community all across north america is congratulating she can't get out of bed she's terrified <laughs> that she's an imposter like she's terrified like wait a sec i just tricked people that i know how to be a politician i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So she writes about all her doubts and okay. all this yeah so even with her like rock solid foundation uh -huh. um it's cool how in her book she like shares her times when her legs were wobbly when she would go up for a speech and totally um, yeah. she'd be like sweating before a big interview yeah. so it's very like um, <laughs> i was I was going to mention talks that, about yeah. the experience like embodied the embodied experience of like going in these pressure situations um but yeah definitely she had the foundation but also in all of her campaigns there's a lot of talk about like the collective leadership it's right. really like there really is like a non-hire it's not like she had one campaign manager that was like her hardcore campaign manager and just did all these it really does sound like it was a collective leadership mm -hmm. and like there was a a group of people involved in all the key decisions um including her husband to some extent like she described these like nights where they would just debate a point all night like and not, no one would sleep uh, uh to, like she was very um she required a lot of thinking through uh every big political decision she made and this is what comes through in the memoir but she didn't just talk to one person about it it was like she had to talk to her whole community and these yeah. some of these decisions would take weeks of talking to people and changing your mind back and forth and it wasn't like um, to do it to be like get a camera in there and be like hey i'm i'm talking to these people like it was like this was her community that gave brought her it's up a consultation and it's like it's a yeah it's a consultation with the people who like she she doesn't owe them in the way of like oh you owe me because i put you in power or you owe me because i gave you that favor it's like no i owe you because we all owe each other and this is yeah, yeah we're like, all part of this, this is a movement and it's a community mm -hmm. and it's like I'm not, do and again, like it's maybe that kind of like whatever, but it's like that enters into your mind. It's like, oh, well, I have to listen to this group because they did elect me. But it's also like they didn't do that by paying you a bunch of money or paying for a bunch of ads. They did it with their own labor that was additional to the labor they had to do to survive under capitalism. Right. Like that's it's like they're and gifting you the ultimate gift in a way under that idea of like they're building a thing for you to rely on, but also it's like, it requires things of you, but it's not this transactional simple thing. And also your conscience guides it, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see that sort of like woven deeply inside everything. I'm just thinking maybe the way to tie this back to Craig's initial question um, was like this idea that even, even as figure as hard hitting as Rosemary Brown was having all these doubts and what tipped her into deciding to run according to in this book, her recollection is um, this guy named Ray Parkinson, who was wanting to run for the nomination himself. I think he might have been an ex-MLA even. He was quite high up, well-regarded in the party. And he was a doctor who shared his practice with her husband, with Rosemary's husband, Bill William wow. Brown. Um, and so after all this hemming and hawing for weeks, she's not sure she's going to run. Ray Parkinson calls her and says, like, look, you're not going to win. They're never going to elect a black woman in this riding. Like, just let me run. That like, was he just all tries she to needed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, like, no, no, I think, uh, you know, I think I'm just as capable as anyone. Blah, blah, blah. And she basically tells him, no, I'm going to run, asshole. Like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> that and it is turned great. out the guy earlier in the day or something, earlier in the week, 
the guy had tried to get Rosemary's husband to tell her not to run. He's like, why don't you tell her not to run? And uh, he's just like, I wouldn't do that even if I could. Like, <laughs> yeah. Talk to her asshole. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I'll um, leave that one for you, buddy. <laughs> and on that point, like getting back to Craig's point, like what will it take to like, to have a more like sort of aggressive insurgent left in Canada or like to tip things in Western Canada back to the left. Just like look at the idiots running things. Yeah, like 100%. Look at these ridiculous people. If Jason Kenney never has a moment of doubt and like introspection of whether he can be the premier of Alberta. He's, he's a complete clown. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, what's, what's his name? Who's already campaigning to be the next conservative leader of uh, Pierre Poiliev or whatever. Like, Oh, the, the tone man, deaf ads. Yeah. Like, but he's but he just like himself. completely <laughs> convinced of himself. Yeah. Right. Like it's the Dunning Kruger effect. It's just effect. like the, the right wing, right wing talk radio and YouTube is just like, it has a big advantage over us on the left because they're completely certain of themselves. They will oh, yeah. not hesitate mm-hmm. to go live on a stream and just start ranting about some idiotic thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's so like in some but sense, at the end of the day, to, they like, accept they, they're like, here's my reality. Here's the, here's what I think. And like, and they, and you get, like you said, they don't question and like even Rosemary and not to say like whatever, but like, she was questioning herself in a way I think ultimately like probably was part of the process of checking healthy, yeah. and, and turning in. Whereas it's like, it's that difference of like the most of the left seems to be more in the position of like, Oh, should I say that? Oh, it, like, what do I need to, okay. I can say, I can be radical on this issue, but not this issue. Mm-hmm. Right. There's like, there is that sense from current MPs that it's like, well, I can talk about this one, but not this one, you know, the foreign yeah. policy is the third rail, like Saudi arms deals, or like, you know, what else my, a provincial version of us is doing is the third rail. We don't want to talk about it. But then it's all of a sudden, it's also like, well, this issue, well, we can, we can talk about income inequality or like feminism now, because those are the issues that like will score us points, right? On the, like the, the consultant scale or, you know, in the news media or whatever, right? It's like, it's, and it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like Rosemary was that, like that manicured, right? Like she she didn't have doubts but they were like doubts that led her to more more consensus and more like seeking out the community that drove her and made her feel like no i am right to say this or no you know what maybe yeah, i need to change a little she didn't longer. doubt her principles or yeah. she didn't doubt why she was doing um the thing but i think just from our point of view like because i would always like run into these like fantastic young organizers like super capable know the issues they're like exactly the people you want in parliament and there or in city council and they're just like, they can't imagine themselves doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, look at the people we elect in Vancouver. Yeah. Like, look, look at, look at that person that beat me by 20,000 votes. Yeah. The one we brought like, up at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. We don't, who's yeah. Yeah. Stop replying to people on Twitter. But I think it's like, yeah. it's kind of how you're saying, like these people that probably have, have, you know, the foundation to be a really good leader are so unsure of themselves because they know all the complexities that go into the issues they know that like the wrong step could like you know land them in hot water so it's like they're very doubtful and it's a lot of there's a lot of apprehension that would go into making that decision as opposed to these people who's like get all their information from like one fact and it's like you know this is my path i know that this is right i am right i'm gonna do this or something like that but is this the who um Who's saying is it the the tragedy? Is it a Churchill quote? No, that's no, Engels. No, it's not Churchill. Engels, Engels the best tragedy. The, the tragedy, tragedy is the, the, no, 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 no. 
the uh, you know the the the, the worst people are uh, the best people are filled with doubt. What's the first part of that saying? Oh, I don't know. Oh my god, this is way worse than when Bush. The worst people are filled with confidence. The best people are filled with doubt. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Oh, so the God. saying is the best. Yeah, okay. The worst people God, are filled with confidence. One. The best people that. are filled with doubt. I don't actually. I don't think I've heard that one, but I mean, it's we're filled yeah. with doubt because we can't remember basic cliche quotes. <laughs> yeah, we just. <laughs> this is the problem. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's Bukowski. Yeah. It's getting late, guys. I'm running out of steam. Here. Yeah, no, That's it's fair. Bukowski. It's a Bukowski quote. So, but I think an observation from that is that this <laughs> the system the party system like the the mechanisms within like top tier political parties uh filter a kind of filter for people who will be successful within that type of system that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily overlap very conveniently to leftist or you know yeah particularly not radical politics mm -hmm. or yeah positions. they filter for rule followers hierarchy respecters right gold star um, students good polite canadians people yeah. who will uphold the status quo and so mm -hmm. to expect and i guess that's part of maybe what prompted my question earlier derek and um we don't need to keep you any longer if you're running <laughs> yeah. out of my Janet, sure. your kids are about um but you know the there is so much reason to believe there's so much evidence kind of against the um efficacy of electoral politics in terms of achieving leftist goals um what is the you know what is the if, from your perspective what is like the kicker what is the the hook for these young activists these young organizers that have great politics have you know are are these great individuals could be the leaders of tomorrow but are completely disenchanted by electoral politics and party politics party kind of um mechanisms that filter against mm. exactly them and and against their ideas against their principles i guess the you know one one big um big tenet of let's say of rosemary brown's like career was her principles and her sticking to her principles you know the, the community that she consulted with the pedigree that she had from her um from her background to be predisposed towards radicalism and organizing and the politics that she fought for that she was passionate about but her principles ultimately um were were there throughout or you know something that she was developing and i think exercising throughout her career what's the hook for the new wave for the next wave of for the next rosemary brown to get into electoral politics and kind of suffer the the slings and arrows that, that yeah that filter will kind of you know squeeze her way their way through that filter and actually Throw come out the other side <laughs> yeah i mean i think the the hook is um that we need movement parties um and that by running for office you can actually support movements or even to some in some cases conjure movements into being right. um, or revive movements that aren't there 
like, and we've seen this in recent Canadian history, like even when Jack Layton, now that I guess I'm dipping back a bit, the early 2000s, when Jack Layton was running to be the NDP leader in 2003, every single time he had a public event or a debate, he would look at the camera and tell people to come out to anti-war protests on this day, this day, and whatever. Like his leadership campaign was actively building, which was at the time was a huge, almost unprecedented um, in size anti-war movement. Yeah. Um, like that didn't last. That was like one moment. But like that approach can be taken by any electoral campaign. You can you can even run for election, and people have done this approach, of course, and I'm not making anything up, but even in situations where you know or you're almost certain you can't win, you can use the campaign to agitate and to yeah. like directly, you can directly recruit people into movements. Like I wish we did it more, but like the Gene Swanson Cope campaigns were pretty enmeshed rhetorically with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Like yeah. I wish the electoral left in Vancouver was even more just like telling people to join the Tenants Union or form yeah. a tenants Organize the tenants in your building, like yeah, just right. directly put people use the electoral vehicles or the campaign or whatever attention you can muster to directly recruit for the grassroots movement. But I that think, need, too, like as much as that happened, like it's also like a it is like a chicken egg situation where it's like, mm -hmm. but we movement, also need the, the movements movement, to yeah. foster these people. Right. Like oh, I think totally. like yeah, and, and that's totally. speaking as someone who is like, you know, just started. Again, like I, I, I think I've said this to you a few times, like I don't want to sound like an asshole because I've been doing this for, you know, a year or two tops before that. It was just me posting on the Internet. Like, I don't want to be I just I, I, that's I, praxis, I Joe. yeah, that's that is posting is praxis. But I think like also like I've, I've said things to you that I'm sure you're like, all right, buddy, like just wait till you're five years in and right or wrong, whatever. Like, I'm not saying that you're wrong to think that either, but it just, it, it feels like we, like at once we're in, it's like our job to make sure we're like building that movement from, from without too. like an electoral victory doesn't come from a movement, you know, like an electoral victory can expire a movement, but then that movement has to be able to talk to that elected person or whatever. And it's not like electoral politics and non elect and direct action or whatever, aren't like this thing that these two things that exist alongside each other. Like there's a, there's actually like connections between them. Yeah, and, it's like a feedback loop, it seems like. And you know, yeah, you can't you mm -hmm. you don't you can't you can't just expect one to go like to to smash into the other or whatever. Like if we're trying to bring them back together as like a, a thing that's that's one thing, um, in that sense, in the sense of like what the left is trying to do, which is like a community that brings up its candidates and the candidates rise up, but then they're always talking back to the community or however, like obviously imperfect metaphor, but um, we need to do the work of, of building those. Like you said, like we're at a place to me where it's, we have to just recognize like, this is where we're at and this is where we need to be. We have to do this work and we, we don't necessarily expect that another Rosemary Brown to come tomorrow. But if we both are like, we need a Rosemary Brown and we need a, you know, a movement to, a support, movement them. to support her. Then yeah. And I mean, let's both. not say that, you know, we, we're not doing a, a history project here, but like, Oh, let's not say that Rosemary Brown was never in contradiction or never uh, in tension with her yes. own grassroots activism. Like when the NDP was uh, not really supporting Operation Solidarity in 1983 the way they should have been. I'm and what sure was Operation some people, Solidarity? Sorry, just for our, uh, for our sorry, listeners, that was a, not for me. Yeah, no, no, no. That was a big like near, <laughs> near general strike uh, in BC in 1983. 
Mm. and like the biggest social movement we've had here in the last half century mm. um, the so, the, against Socred austerity programs. Um, and like Dave Barrett as leader of the NDP in opposition and the party was not, was not going all out for the Operation Solidarity right. the way they should have. They were, they were doing the parliamentary electoral approach mm. to things. Like I'm sure in that moment, and I don't know specifics because I haven't talked to organizers about this, but you know, I'm sure there were moments of tension or yeah. where people wanted Rosemary to do more like, there's there's an inevitable contradiction no matter who's in that elected of position course, mm. um so part of it is like we want some people to run for office now but we don't want you to abandon your movement we want yeah. we don't want for example if someone gets elected we don't want all the best organizers to go and work for the party or for exactly. the elected person yeah we need we need the some of the qualified or qualified experienced people um to stay at that grassroots level to to build them. And that often happens when the left gains power nationally. Yeah. Is that the social movements get drained of all their best people. Um, Who then in turn gets sucked the into party the system. disappears and, into the government. Yeah. Mm. And it's yeah. like, and it's not even necessarily that they don't, they've just suddenly cynically abandoned their principles. It's just mm. like, no. again, the, all of a sudden they're in the position where they have to be in tension with the grassroots. Yeah. So of course, like they're, again, like it, it but that's that's obviously a larger contradiction of like capitalism where we all have to sell our labor to survive it's like okay right. but it's but it's just to say like that's why it's it's actually good for some of these organizers to say the grassroots not not because they suddenly become you know beltway insiders or like ottawa insiders but that they just get laundered into the system in a way that smooths their edges totally that the yeah. grassroots yeah. won't right and that's what yeah, i and some activists would give up power to go into elected office like right, there totally. are some cases where someone has so much stature or credibility as a movement leader that you actually don't want to put them in an elected office where they're just mm -hmm. a backbencher. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, they have totally. more social power to do good from that movement position. Right. Totally. So yeah. I'm definitely not advocating taking like all the, no, yeah. everybody no, needs didn't... to run for office everywhere. It's just that there needs to be a much bigger pool to like, uh, find people and to support people. Um, especially for marginalized communities. Um, yeah. And make, and exactly again, not even just that it's like, those marginalized communities, like we have to both not just go in there as, you know, as like, you know, white middle-class working class people who, you know, people who aren't a part of those marginalized communities. It's not just a matter of those movements going in there. It's like those movements has to have to come from there and also talk to other movements. And like we have, but we also have to be aware of the ways that we perpetuate the, like quietly perpetuate the issues that affect the grassroots and make it harder for those communities to organize themselves. Like, right. And not that we're doing anything directly, but just like, we have to be aware of that too. So it's well, like, yeah, go ahead. Supporting, supporting them and making it so that it's not so harrowing to consider the prospect of getting involved in either the movement at, um, you know, at a significant level or in terms of like considering candidacy or supporting a candidate um, because those things, as you guys have kind of explained, those things feed off of each other. And if that loop is interrupted or if there's not, if there are, aren't the people whose voices need to be heard and who, whose communities need to be represented there. Um, and if they don't feel safe entering into those spaces, then it's not going, it's just going to revert back to, you know, closer to the status quo, which is the whole, which is, which is the opposite of the point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Derek, for coming on. Um, if people are interested, uh, 
we'll have a bunch of links in the description as well as a bunch of uh, black organizations and fundraisers you can support in Vancouver and British Columbia specifically. Um, do you have any plugs, you know, want to talk about where people can find you, what you're doing lately, that kind of stuff. I wouldn't want your podcast to, to plug me at all. And, and as I say, it was kind of just serendipitous with um, my, my partner's colleague at work being the granddaughter and um, yeah, it's really yeah, cool. just diving into some of this stuff. It's just um, serendipitous for, for me. And uh, yeah, we have a long way to go. And um, so like keep the attention uh, on your social channels. Join your local on, uh, organization on... if you can, please. Yeah, well, it goes without saying a socialist should be organized. Yeah. So, yeah. And if you don't have a socialist group wherever you live, even if uh, all you do is post online, must, of course, yeah. you find other posters, see if they're in, if, that are in your area, and you DM them. You can actually yeah. meet in real life and do stuff too. You'd be surprised. Eventually, we'll all be able to meet in real life again. Eventually, yeah. Someday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Derek, we'll I really see. appreciate the the subject yeah. it was yeah. a great pick Thank and you, I, I, yeah, excellent. I, I, I enjoy your your writing as well yeah i've read quite yeah a few and i was pieces. listening to some of your episodes on the russian revolution it's really fascinating the way you, you guys are diving deep on these um these issues and and bringing out the lesser known characters yeah, yeah I thought, I thought it was well thanks again thank you we really appreciate that um and yeah i agree with what uh craig well, your work is fantastic keep it up and uh We'll have you back on again soon. There's no choice. I mean, once yeah. you're a socialist for like 20 plus years, <laughs> you might as well just keep going until the end. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, There's no point in doing yeah. that. So. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, find a healthy space to organize or post in and uh, you will have a happy long life as a socialist. And look for the Rosemary Browns. As an elder, I can say that. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you, Derek. Thanks have so a great much, night. Bye. Thank you.